Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. When it comes to having difficult conversations, Ana Sofia Pelais knows how to set the table. Ana Sofia heads the Miami Freedom Project. The organization tries to bring people from different political and cultural backgrounds together to vote on issues that affect South Florida. She wants a Miami that's more engaged with issues that affect us all, from climate change to immigration. It's not always easy getting people who might have very different opinions around a table to have difficult conversations that wouldn't necessarily happen organically. Her own Cuban table in Miami involved more than lechon and tostones. It included discussions of political upheaval and immigration, scarcity and abundance, all these elements that shaped Cuban and Cuban-American cuisine. Anna Sofia explored this while writing a cookbook, The Cuban Table. It was nominated for a James Beard Award in 2015. Her book preserved recipes that today mostly exist only in exile, a pointed example of how political decisions influence everything, including food and culture. Anna Sofia is expanding the size of her table these days. As the executive director of the Miami Freedom Project, she's taking Miami's issues to Washington, D.C. Her goal is to give us a seat at the table. To talk to us about it is Anna Sofia Pelais. Welcome, Anna Sofia. Thank you, Carlos. I'm very happy to be here. It's great to catch up with you because you and I know each other from a very different context. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what I was keeping myself from saying before we went on the air is, is you and I both have like this food writing background. And it's, it's how I know your work, you know, because I was the food editor at the Miami Herald. And, and I first came across your first your blog, you know, Hungry Sophia. And then that led to your book, The Cuban Table. And it and we went for a stretch there where I, I kind of had lost track of you a little bit. And I and I thought, you know how you made this pivot, right? Like, or why even you made this pivot from food writer and cookbook writer to like defending democracy, like how that happened. And then I read the introduction to the Cuban table. Like I really sat with it. And there was this one line that really stuck with me. And that's when you'd asked your grandfather, who taught you to cook? And he responded, exile. And it kind of all clicked, you know, like this idea of how politics influences everything including food, like you can't just shut up and cook, right? Um, so I, I guess talk to me about that, about that that evolution into really writing about this one specific topic and, and kind of looking at it from the other side. Yeah, I appreciate you identifying that because it was very much part of the genesis of writing about food and that conversation with my grandfather and that experience of how I understood Cuban food and how I, why, how I understood why it was important for me to learn it and adapt it in this country, but I had never thought of it before because it's just you don't question it. It's just you, you don't always know the why for your why. Right. So I, I appreciate you identifying that. And it, it was very much about my grandparents' experience. They're, they didn't have that experience of cooking in Cuba. My grandmother, my grandfather was working and my grandmother had a career of her own, um, which was maybe less usual at that time. She was a teacher and a very committed educator. So when they came here, they had to learn to cook for themselves. And that was very much part of their experience as as immigrants, as being able to adapt to a new country and being able to take care of themselves in a different way without the community that they had around them, without the support system that they had around them, and missing home and needing to recreate that experience for themselves and for their family. And having a small kitchen in Queens and a woman who lived in their building who was actually Puerto Rican who said, this couple is struggling, I'm going to help them. And she was the one who connected them to cooking and that experience and when I knew them when they were in Miami now and they were always cooking it was part of our everyday from the moment I woke up my grandfather was 
deciding which store he was going to go to, where he was going to find rabo encendido that I liked, where he was going to pick up the ingredients that my grandmother needed for the desserts that she would be making. It was very much a part of their life together here. I love that uh, that image of this uh, this Puerto Rican neighbor helping out these recently arrived uh, Cuban exiles. And it speaks to so much about it goes outside that circle. You know, like we tend to think, oh, these communities they they help eat, they help themselves, right? The Cuban community is only helping each other. But that very different image of someone seeing someone as an immigrant and seeing someone as who needs help, who needs a little direction, right? Like that that almost feels like at the heart of the work that you're doing now. Absolutely, I think we all have those stories of our families where we think, you know, we've heard about, and then the first time I was at the DMV, y de pronto apareció, and it was somebody came in and helped me fill out the form, or I didn't know how to register someone in, in college, or I had to get that first job interview. And we all have those, we all have those people that stepped in and helped us. If not helped us, we're thinking about, or helped our families, and that's the reason that we were able to be well and, and have the opportunities that we were able to have. And in my mind, you always, those become these origin stories that are so important and that you, your family's always telling you and you're always telling yourself and you think, who do I want to be? Do I want to be that person who stepped in, who saw the need and helped that person in that moment where that my, my, my grandparents were in, that my parents were living? Or do I want to be the person who turned their back? And I wow. always want to choose to be the person who, who helped. Right. And what an interesting thing that you, you kind of you've co-found this organization that kind of says, hey, those folks who want to help, who are that, who are that kind of personality, stepping in to kind of to connect those people to, like you said, the, the person that would help someone at the DMV or what have you. Like that really must have, this really has been a thing where it's tied you into like, like-minded people, right? I mean, it's a, pro, it's a progressive organization. So like you're thinking about things like social justice and social equality and things like that. It is a progressive organization. We're very transparent about what perspective we're coming coming from. And it is about diversifying the conversation, mm-hmm. making sure that we're engaging on issues across the political spectrum. The problems that we have in front of us are complicated and we have to bring every option to the table. We have to be able to have that discussion, mm-hmm. which is, is, is what's so important and I do think there is that piece of, yes, wanting to help, but also recognizing that people need to know how they can best help. And it's not, it's not always easy. You don't always see the way. And for some of us, we may have that immediate person that we're helping or somebody who's come more recently. I know that you know I have a family that has come more recently from Cuba that we're trying to support. Or you might, that might be your uncle, that might be your aunt, that might be your, your cousin um, that is, has finally made that, that change. Or it might be calling your commissioner because there's a way of helping them, maybe that person that you don't know, but more broadly, so that, that those support systems exist. Or it can be calling your state legislature. It could be making sure that you're registered to vote, so that you're you're voting for, for the people who are going to be there to support the ones that you don't know, the people that you're not going to have the media contact, making sure that that safety net is there and that people can be okay through this through these difficult times. Yeah. Did, did have you had that experience recently where you have family arrive from Cuba and and having to help them navigate the system? Have you had that happen? And not family friends, mm-hmm. and I think it really it, it it brings the work that that I do. It certain certainly makes it more visceral in a way because you have those pathways um, that you are familiar from your own family. Yeah, um, you're seeing it through their eyes in a very fresh, in a new way, a very 2023 way, right? And it can be difficult because we've, we've, we've all transitioned and that's a sign of our success. And, but it's also, you don't, wanna, you don't wanna close the door behind you. And I think I had that memory, I don't know if you've, you've experienced this from when we were young, when Mariel happened. One of my earliest memories was going to Mariel, Mariel to, to help 
process people who were coming in. My mother said, they're coming. We need to sign up. She was a volunteer. Hmm. When, we, when we were growing up in the 80s, it's like you went where your parents went. Right. <laughs> so I had to go with her and sit by the table and watch her, watch the work that she was doing. Certainly with when, when the crisis came, when the people were coming um, by sea in the 90s, that was another need where you saw people that were coming more, more recently from Cuba, where you were gathering whatever you had, making sure that that was available. And you had this collective community response. And I haven't seen that. And I think we have hmm. so many organizations that are doing important work to receive immigrants, but they're fewer and they're overburdened. And they have all the best intentions, but every case that they deal with is a refugee case. It is an asylum case. It's at a very high urgency level, and it's overburdened. And we really need to have that place where we're all stepping in and collectively making ourselves available for the people who are coming in now the same way that we were received, our families were received, and the same way we were always present. Why do you think that's different now? Because I, I feel like that too, and I don't know if it's anecdotal or not, or just you know my uh, you know our, our, our personal connections to it but i i do feel like there was a more like a more cohesive connected um like independent uh, you know like the folks who were being that generation that was here before kind of helping each other why do you think that we're why do you think it's different now i think it's a very difficult thing when you think about you know my family came in the 1960s mm-hmm. i was born here as you progress you can lose that that immediate connection to people who are coming more recently mm. This, you know, the, the friends who are coming now, it had been a while before I had that experience, that, that, that immediate contact to what that immediate needs were. And people move on. And that's part of the process. That's what your family wants. They want you to just live your life. And you always have to have that, that larger, again, that community response that direct, it's directed at every level. So we have a whole of government response, and that's certainly whole of local government response should be there for people who are coming in. We're always going to be receiving people in South Florida from Cuba, from Venezuela, from Nicaragua, from Haiti. These are, when we think about it, our kind of very foundational diaspora communities, but then from other Latin American countries, from other Central American countries, that need is always there, and they're very much part of the fabric of our city. So it's really about being present and vocal about what they need and identifying the organizations that can help and provide that direct aid. The other thing is that there's a, there's been a contraction where we maybe had more agencies that were helping, that were doing uh, engaging in the settlement process. Now we have fewer agencies that are doing the work, even though the numbers haven't gone down. And that's where the politics steps in, right? Like because certain agencies and what have you are there, they might be government funded. They might get a certain stipend or whatever to keep those agencies afloat. And if that goes away, the agencies goes away, and and people arrive without any connection to the place, right? Absolutely. And I think when you think about it, you know, we think about immigration when we talk about it on the national, the federal level Mm. of this very broad immigration reform that needs to pass. And then we have, it's been complicated for both parties. I don't think either party has come through on immigration. Mm. Um, I think there's, there's, there's ways, there's language and there's rhetoric that is more welcoming of immigrants and that's helpful, but we need to offer real solutions and we can't let that pressure up. On the local level, we have at the county, we do have a very supportive county that does make agency, make services available that we need to increase that visibility. We have direct aid orgs that do incredible work, that are always present, that are always there, that are always trying to fill the need, but they need help, they need support. It's about finding the right group, volunteering, seeing what the needs are, and being very present, but then also looking at immigration, especially in South Florida, 
as an opportunity, hmm. as something that we should be, a, you know, a very good friend who does this work for um, Miami Workers Center, Sandra Dennis. She just said this a couple of days ago, so it's top of mind. She said, you know, we need to celebrate. We need to, mm. to see this. It can't, we can't look at people who have come through this experience that we know so well as a problem to solve. We need to see them as, we need to think about the welcoming. We need to think about how we're honoring that experience and how we're seeing we've, we, we reached safety, we reached opportunity, we've, we've gotten to this place, we want to get you there too. Right. I, 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 a couple of the, the initiatives that you've had really stuck out to me because it seems like you have this fun way of making these, you, you you have a funny way to engage these serious issues. Like you'll have like a, you had an event called Just Vote Bro, El Lechonazo, or El Lechonazo, and I thought that was hilarious. Um, you had a Ventanita in Vote that I remember um, where you're, you're trying to get people signed up to vote uh, on issues. And and I guess why was that important to you? Like how did you, how did you find that that was, that that crossed the divide, in other words, because the DMV, like the DMV experience, is a very beige, mm-hmm. beige and cold <laughs> experience. Uh, uh, but but what you guys did is something totally different. Where, how did you see that work? I I think it's very important. I think coming from my family, coming from Cuba, having mm-hmm. had that experience, having experienced the loss of democracy, yeah, and that loss, that was a real grief. And that was something that was really mourned because of everything that was lost exponentially because of it. Family, community, history, connection to your culture, needing to recreate that, mm. um, I, I believe, to great success here. It's something that I want to celebrate. And I think democracy should always be celebrated. And people should come to it with joy. The same way we talked about the immigrant experience, people should come to democracy with joy because it's something that we get to do. It's something that we get to practice. And I think that any, every cultural organization, every civic engagement organization should ask people to bring their whole selves to the process. And that's why I feel that you're asking somebody to vote, you should do it in a way that feels like it connects with them, it connects with who they are, it connects with who they love. It shouldn't be about this polarization, it shouldn't be about this kind of end of times conversation we, he- we, we hear people having of like, I'm going to save you, or that that other person means you harm. It should be about this is what I need. This is what I want for myself. This is what I want for my community. I get to act on this now. So that's why we always want to make it a celebration. We always want to make it a place where people want to be. Right. And how did you get to, because Miami can also be so segregated even by nationality and what have you, how did you, what were some of the ways that you found were successful in in bringing different groups together that, were, that had a, a common experience, even though they're from different places? I think we're at the stage now, and this is where I think it's been my experience. It's my my experience as as, as when I was writing and mm-hmm. how I was speaking to people is that there is a Miamian. There's a Miamian. Yes. There's this identity that we all come to that we may our families may have come from Cuba, Haiti, Venezuela, these these communities that that are very well known. But together, we're we're Miamian, and we all have this investment, and it can be very hard to cross those divides. We do. We do live, we do kind of like pick our corners. Mm-hmm. And for us, the commitment when we, from the moment we started Miami Freedom Project was that we can't break apart silos if we operate like one. Right. So we always want to be very welcoming. We want to be in uncomfortable spaces. If there are spaces that maybe they don't expect to see a Cuban American, they don't expect a Cuban American to be open to the conversation that they're going to have. You have to be there and you have to be willing to hear things that make you uncomfortable. You have to be willing to challenge them, but you also have to stay. And you have to build those relationships. And maybe it won't be comfortable the first time. The second time, they don't, they'll know you mean it. 
and the third time you're working together and you have common purpose and common cause and you're able to move something forward. Well, t- talk to me, talk to me about that a minute. Uh, you know, cause I know that you're thinking of some examples that that's happened to you where you had to keep showing up. What, what were some of those uncomfortable spaces that you had to keep showing up in? Well, I think the, the, one of the experiences that we had early on with Miami Freedom Project, so much of our work was about, we're going to bring everybody into a room together and we're going to share a meal together. Oh, it's going to be great. It's no gonna one's going to argue. No, it's, it's <laughs> going to, the argument's going to be good. It's going to be a constructive conversation. And then 2020 happened and it was very personally a difficult time. We lost our co-founder, Patrick, who was Hidalgo, who was so invested in, in this, what this experience would be like. And we couldn't come together. We, we lost our connection to each other. And we had to find new ways of, of communicating and we had to pivot to virtual spaces and we had to think about what it really meant to bring people together. And then we had the George Floyd um, terrible tragedy that happened and the response to it. And while we, we do present, we do engage Miamians um, across all different groups, we felt that there was a need for Cuban Americans to come together as a community and identify both our own inequities within our community and how we engage in the broader community and have those conversations. And who would be a part of that conversation? Were we talking about a Cuban-American as an ally when there are Cuban-Americans who are black Cuban-Americans and that that is their experience? They're Mm -hmm. not proximate to that experience. That's their lived experience. How we engage there and how we maintain that space and who we're bringing into that conversation with the intentionality that it's going to continue, that we're not asking people to come in and go through this difficult um, experience and then just leave them to it. And then, great, we check that box, we're going to move on. Um, and that's how we started bringing people together virtually. We really identified people who became the core, yes, on the work that we were doing to respond to racial justice within the Mer- Cuban-American community and more broadly. But we also found the people there who were, they just there were just people who cared. There were people who cared about climate. There were people who cared about immigration. There were people who cared about, yes, racial justice, economic justice. And they were willing to question things and they wanted to be part of that work with us. So it was a way of finding community and that was that initial space of like, do people really want to hear from Cuban Americans? Do they associate with us as, as with the problem or the solution or mm. see us as apart from it? And that's where you just have to kind of say like, I care about this and then just kind of put put out a call and see who wants to also come to that space and participate. And I think that's how we very much direct many of our campaigns. It's about identifying an issue, bringing people together in the conversation, and having that community response be what leads us to our advocacy and our programming. Our guest today is the activist and writer Ana Sofia Pelais. She's the author of the Cuban Table Cookbook and the executive director of the Miami Freedom Project, the progressive voter advocacy group. I'm, I'm really drawn by this, um, this idea of your own Cuban table and having these discussions, sometimes difficult, which we've had around our Thanksgiving tables, right, <laughs> in the last, especially in the last four, six years or so. Um, and I'm curious about your family has this, this history of creativity as a form of expression and protest. Um, tell me about that a little bit, because your sister is a playwright, your sister, Carmen Belais, your great aunt, Right was a was a noted uh, avant-garde painter, um, Amelia Pelais. Um, tell me about that background. Like, do you think that that influenced your interest in kind of using creativity as a way to to have these kind of conversations? I think I was very lucky having that background that I saw creativity as a, as an avenue. Hmm. I didn't live in a family where people said, you know, oh, you want to you want to write? What's that? Or you want to? How do you? 
there wasn't like that how you make a living conversation that maybe there could have been. It might have been, <laughs> might have been helpful at times. <laughs> you could have been doctor. Uh, yeah, but I, I think there, I, I, I did grow up in a family and I, I appreciated that, that valued creativity mm-hmm. that saw it, that gave it its worth and its importance. And that, 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 that space was there for me. And no, I, I, I you know, my aunt was um, painter Amelia Pelais, and you know, an incredible artist who I think um, was very groundbreaking as a woman in her time, certainly as an artist, full stop, in, an, an incredible, um, an incredibly important Cuban artist who I, I think even if she wasn't my aunt, I would, I would respond to um, very much because I think she spoke to an emotional experience in Cuba that was is is something that maybe some other other artists might miss or maybe when you think about the female perspective that's so important so I think that was very valued and important in my in my family her uncle was a poet um Julian del Casal who very much had his own way of being um was very active in the the Cuba's war of independence oh but say more about that I'm curious still about that. writing as a poet I think um you know he was he was kind of known for being very unique and very much like, you know, would kind of work with all these young men who were engaged in the move for independence. And they'd be like, what did you do? He's like, I wrote a poem today about an oriental fan. And they're like, did you collect any money? He's like, just the fan. Like, just it was the, very just much the poem today. Just the poem. Um, but, you know, had a stroke-good relationship with all of these well-known figures of the independence movement. But he was given his role in his space. And it was very much about defining una cubanidad. Right. And through through that artistic expression, that was so beautiful. So that was the that first experience. And then his sister, who was my great grandmother, was very involved in politics, um, very much with through her husband, who was very involved in liberal politics in the War of Independence, and more directly engaged as a translator. So I think that that kind of crux of politics and culture was always part of my family. Yeah, and it's a, I feel like it's a it's a very um, it's also particularly a very Caribbean point of view, right? Like politics infuses and everything. It's it's like the it's the the national pastime. Yeah, the war will come to you. Right. So you have to be be very present. I think the instability that defined uh, that defines our countries, unfortunately, in in so many instances, makes you alive to politics, movements, how we're engaging, how we're defining and coming to our own as as countries and as people. And All I think right. we're seeing that in this context in the United yeah. States in our in our diaspora. Yeah, so clearly your your family made room for for creativity and for weirdos who write poetry in a day, which is yeah, <laughs> but it was, so, it was good. So it was like, all good. Yeah, so like that that feels uh, that's in the background when you you like you grew up in Miami, right? And then but you left to New York to study to study. I period. did. Born and raised in Miami, left for New York when I was eighteen to study. Went to a women's college. My grandmother, as I said before, she was an educator and she was very intent on. My pursuing higher education. I think she she grew up in a time that where that wasn't taken for granted, and that was something that was was passed on to me. So being able to be an institution that had prioritized educating women was very important to me. You were you were at Barnard. I was at Barnard, mm-hmm. um, which was a wonderful experience, and stayed in New York, and for for a long time thought that would be you know where I would live, and that's where I was developing, and that's where I was you know found my voice as a writer, mm-hmm. and found my pathway um, there, um, and you know in that experience couple of decades in, I came about writing The Cuban Table, writing a cookbook that brought me back to Miami. But it's interesting because you, you started writing really as a form of expression and food was like the the the, the topic that you kind of revolved around. It wasn't like recipe writing. It was um, this great this blog was called The Hungry Sophia, right? And, um, and I want to say that it came around the time of the 
like I associated with the Julia and Julia movie, Julia and Julia movie, like in general. There was something in the air. So I think it was yeah. when blogging was coming into its own. Right. And you know, I had this interest in food at the mm-hmm. time. I was actually working in film, so I was definitely I was mm-hmm. in a creative field. And I would have this time between projects where I became more involved in, in food and what I was eating. And, and I lived in this incredible neighborhood in Brooklyn where you were at the, at the crossroads of an Italian, historic black neighborhood, a Middle Eastern neighborhood. So the, the, the markets were amazing. The conversations you would have when you were just shopping for ingredients were incredible. You always wanted to learn more from the nanas and the people who were, were sharing recipes around you. And it, it turned me more inward thinking about Cuban food recreating Cuban food in my own kitchen there. So it really became a way of connecting to home. Oh, and that's kind of what brings you here. So, I mean, what did being in Miami then uh, kind of awakening you? What, what? because obviously it led the, to the cookbook, but then so much more. I think in researching my book mm-hmm. and, and needing to be in Miami, I engaged with, I thought of Miami in a different way. You're not there for family. You're not there for friends. You're not there having, touching back to an experience in your past and wanting to maintain those relationships. You're seeing people in a new way. You're seeing people in their professional capacities. I'm interviewing people in their kitchens. I'm interviewing restaurant owners. I was seeing how the food scene was developing. Right. You were you were working as a journalist uh, for, for stretches too. Yeah, I was working that, that was, I was working as a food writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, w- I had my blog that I was maintaining. I had my cookbook that I was writing and then I was freelance writing for different outlets. So I was always looking for those stories. Immigrant communities was probably the most consistent through line. I think I was always trying to find that community and what their connection was to what they were making and their connection was to home. So I think that was probably the most, the the stories, those were the stories that I was most drawn to. Right. Because it's, it's, it's just a different way to tell stories. The food was an, was an entry point to tell these very specific stories. Absolutely. And you know that well, I think you know, you think you can talk about it. it was salty, it was sweet, it was great, it was good, it was bad, it was indifferent. But why did somebody makes that? Yes, why did someone make that to begin with? Exactly, and there, that's there's a universe there, and I feel like that's something that I, I wanted to keep going back to. In New York at the time, there were so many identified, differentiated ethnic neighborhoods that had become were become were maybe losing a little bit, um, mm-hmm. or becoming um, more homogenized. Um, so I definitely felt that sense of. You felt like you were seeking something that was maybe, you know, just pulling away from you. So right. there was that sense of wanting to hold on to that piece as well. Right. And I, I'm sure that you don't, you almost don't even have to ask more of a question than why is the Cuban food in Miami different than the f- food that you find in actual Cuba before you arrive at the word, before you arrive at politics? Absolutely. I think Cuban, Cuban politics, I, it definitely inter- it. If you left Cuba for politics, then you have the bad news that you are going to be living with politics your entire life. Yes. It's, it's going to be the preoccupation. It's always it's going to hang over everything. Um, so you just you might as well engage with it. And I think Cuban food in particular. Um, when I wrote my book, I had so many questions from national journalists, and it was understandable. I think people think, oh, the food here is okay, but the food in Italy is going to be better, or any kind of ethnic cuisine. When you go to the source, it's going to be more authentic. It's going to be more true to the roots of the food. And I think in Cuba, for very unfortunate um, circumstances, you find that reverse. You find that there were things that were in many ways maintained here because they're in a situation where it's, it's, it seems like there's going on, you know, beyond 60 years, it's an emergency situation that does not get better. There's that sense of loss. There's that sense of just, you know, crisis rations that you know doesn't really allow you to explore foods even though obviously there are still things that, that happen in Cuba 
um, that I was able to discover as well. But that sense of the food here is more or less authentic just doesn't apply to Cuban food. Right. I imagine that living through that experience really starts, it started you thinking in a, in a broader direction, like what are the things that are affecting us here, us, all of Miami, the people that arrive here, you know, with, with these political realities and, you know, with different backgrounds, trying to make a go of it in this, in this new place. And that kind of leads you to, to where you are now. Absolutely. I think that, that entire experience, and I think even through the process of the book, placing where my family was in their own immigrant experience, because what I thought of as just I, I took for granted was something that they were rediscovering. So when my when you know when my father was saying, "Oh my God, I found my maze," and it was it was it was he was so excited. I thought, "Well, no, my maze." Was, there's there's uh, there's always my maze. I didn't realize that there was a period where that wasn't grown here, and that that was something that had to. I think the demand was there, so they suddenly had to start. They had to start cultivating it in in, in a meaningful way. So I think their rediscovery of things. I thought it was them saying, trying to give me that Cuban experience, trying to share something with me. But they were finding it themselves. There was they were still recovering those things, and that was what was so urgent for them. Right. When did you feel like you started identifying with other communities outside of your home? You know, like. Um, because we, you know, uh, my parents were also Cuban American, and we, you grew up with that experience. But then there's the maybe the first time that you hear a story about someone who's from Venezuela or someone who's from Haiti, whose family came over in the late '70s, early '80s for for some kind of, uh, you know, also po- horrible political crisis at home. Do you remember those moments where you really started seeing those lines and, be, and kind of saying, "Hey, we we had these things in common, and and we should be we should be pulling this in the same direction." I think that was part of my childhood mm. that there was that sense of these other communities that were in other ways their 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 crises paralleled yours mm. and that it's at, at different points there would ha- you would have that different urgency i remember when people were coming from nicaragua i remember when colombia people were coming in from colombia in in large numbers and that you know you hear about a crisis in argentina and suddenly there's you know you're hearing the accents everywhere i think every time something happens you would have that experience of, of that immediate presence of, of people who are coming here um, in response to what was happening in their countries of origin. I think that living in New York, um, mm-hmm. it was a different experience where here you might be more comfortable being within that Cuban enclave. In New York, you're all you're all Latino. So you're in you're in spaces where I remember my first experience being at school was, you know, you're going to be invited to the students of color weekend. And all of the people that you were interacted with, that you were directed to, were people who had different immigrant experience, different races, different ethnicities. You were immersed in that. It was like, okay, you're all other. So. Wow. How did that strike you to be, to be you know, the first time? Because I know when I lived in Atlanta for a stretch, a little over six years, it, people just assumed if you spoke, if they heard Spanish, that you were Mexican. And all of a sudden, you, you found yourself in a different community all of a sudden. What was that like for you? I, I, you know, it's an experience that I wouldn't, I wouldn't exchange, I wouldn't give away for anything because I think it gave you an awareness of y- your own privilege. Mm-hmm. I think how fortunate I was to live in a community that was very much unapologetic and very much about establishing itself and and not questioning their right to be mm-hmm. and their right to, to 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 prosper here. And I think that's something that is really important for for every for every immigrant that's going through that experience and for everyone who feels marginalized in this country. I think, you know, it's a it's a it's a very difficult to bring so many people together. It's part of the challenges of, of living in the United States, but that's also the opportunity. So I think being given that that sense of self 
is very important. I think it's something that I would I would wish for everyone and I would want to see developed and, and cultivated in, in every every person who's coming here of a different background. Um, I think it's very important. And I think it, it's very humbling also because you also feel like, but for, you know, I'm not right. seeing a Cuban is, is very different in Miami as a Cuban is anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And you have to you have to appreciate that, that when somebody is telling you their experience as a Puerto Rican, somebody is telling you their experience as a Dominican in New York, you say, all right, there's not we're not very different yet. Our experiences have been very different because of the circumstances that that we grew up in. So you really you you don't take anything for granted, and you want you want what you have for other people to have access to it. Right, I imagine you know this this whole project has been it seems like such a way for you to really really even express who you are, you know, what, and what you learn, the like culmination of what you what you've known, and and I know your sister is a playwright, and like her her plays are are also like food and politics, like yeah. rum and rum and coke was her first big play that people heard, the Cuban vote, which was just a couple years ago here. Um, did you guys influence each other? Because I know you guys are very tight, too. Yeah. No, we're very tight. My sister, um, Carmen Pelais, wonderful writer. I, You know, I always tell her, and I don't think she even understands herself in this way. She's she's fearless because she just says what she's thinking. There's no filter. There's There are no subtitles there. Whatever she's thinking, whatever she's feeling, she's able she's able to say it with a kind of bravery and a presence and a courage that I always find inspiring. I was going to say, you, you're obviously inspired by her. Absolutely. Um, she's 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 just she's wonderful. And I think she's so expressive. And I think she has that she communicates that sense of belief and confidence in, in what she in what she means. And she's always, you know, as strong as she is, she's always looking for the most vulnerable person and shoring them up, because mm. I think injustice is something that really motivates her. So she always wants to speak to it. And I think, you know, I think that awareness of vulnerability is something that when you when you've had that experience you look to help others and i think she she exemplifies that so beautifully i think you know sometimes i i think people respond to her work they have a very visceral response to her work in both directions <laughs> but they know that she's she's been truthful and she she says things that everybody's you know we all kind of feel and then suddenly it's just like a cannon boom <laughs> it's out there and she said it and I think that's what people respond to. And I, I always, I, it's something I admire and I aspire to and I, I, I try to emulate in some ways. Who is the person in your life, I mean, that really saw both of your, those creativities? I mean, because you, we were talking about your ancestors going mm-hmm. way, way back, yeah. greats, right? Great greats or what have you. But in, like more tangibly in your life, who saw those things and really encouraged those things in you guys? You know, I think my father always encouraged us. Um, my father was definitely just loved. You know, I think when you and I think you might relate to this. I know that you have you have all girls. When you have girls, you're just kind of like, all right, you're not apologizing. You're not, you know, you're not kind of like changing your behavior. It's very much like you you get that kind of push to just be who you are, and not kind of modulate your your kind of fall into these like gender norms or like take that very passive role was just like no this is great you're going to do it and kind of like you know always pushing us off the diving board and and kind of making us um really try things but that's a progressive view for like a a cuban dad of of that generation i i I think so i you know i'd like to think that he would be um supportive of my views i think you know i know that there's a lot of conflict in families but 
you know, like I said, I was like, if he's, if he were to, I'm very sorry that he's, he's not with us now, but if he had a problem with it, sorry. then, um, you know, uh, he, he's, he's very much the, the, the impetus behind it. So he's, he would only have himself to blame. And I think my mother <laughs> in her, in her way, my mother's a much more soft-spoken person, but always supportive, never questioning our choices, always very much about, does that make you happy? That's what you should do. And I think that was very much a support that we had. And I think my mother's very comfortable just with with the choices that we make and with the risks that we've taken, even though she herself is probably a more careful person. I think she really values that we're trying things. And I think to always have that unconditional support, I think, you know, to be able to be in a place where you can think like, you know, if this person's okay with it, I can try this thing and you feel like you're going to have that that support is something that I've, I've really appreciated. Our guest today is the Cuban-American activist and writer Ana Sofia Pelais. As the executive director of the Miami Freedom Project, she's making sure that progressives in Miami have a seat at the table. So you literally have been able to, I mean, it's one thing to talk about these issues at your own Cuban table at home, mm-hmm. but it's quite another to be able to get it in front of an audience that can actually make the changes that you want to see. So. You've you've had the chance to visit the White House and to have like one-on-one conversations with Kamala Harris when she was down. Uh, I want to say earlier this year or late last year. Yes, yeah, so, well, no, earlier this year when she was making an announcement around climate. Right. So tell me about that. About the first kind of opportunities that you have to to take those conversations to the White House and and that experience. It it was a, it was a wonderful experience, and I do think that you know we can be very cynical about politics. Mm-hmm. I think we're used to hearing people campaign for a job that they describe as not wanting. <laughs> right, so that's, that's always it's complicated. horrible, but it's I'm going to brave it. There's right. a swamp and all, all of these these elements. But my experience has always been that there are people who are very committed to public service. These are complicated issues. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of competing interests, a lot of things that need to be worked out and understood in order to get to the point where an issue becomes a policy that can then be implemented. And through a democratic system, which can be baffling and challenging and difficult, but when you're able to sit down and have a conversation, you do get to that point where this is my experience, they share their experience, this is what I hope you can understand that could help you make a better decision or make you help you make an informed decision to the extent that you can get a sense of where this community is at and you're only you're speaking for yourself but you're you're also being asked to speak to bring those stories in of the people who the family that's just come um, that's having this experience from Cuba or the you know what your grandparents experienced or why people are protesting or why people are upset or people are having a visceral reaction to something that's happening inside Cuba, even though they're they're in Miami, and giving some kind of context so that people can at the very least know, and that you know that they know, and that they can then make a, a decision that hopefully will be for a greater good or a better outcome. Right. Talk to me about some of those moments that you had where you felt like we got this message a little further for that for those folks who, who won't have a chance to, to have a conversation with the Vice President of the United States, or to be to be at an event in the White House, like what were some of those experiences that you've had that you're like, we did something here, like we're onto something. You know, I th- I think it's a very humbling experience, and I would say what I took away from you know I think there was two. You're you're referring to two two moments. I think you know immediately after July 11th, we were able to, we were in, um, the president invited. A group of Cuban American um, speakers, Felicia Garrido. We should say July, the July 11th. There were July protests 11th in Cuba. in Cuba. The protests in Cuba. Right. So it was really just to 
for them to to receive some uh, get some information mm-hmm. about what they were seeing, what the response was, what potentially that they can do, how they can be supportive, and you know, the, yeah. I, I think you I appreciate. I think what I took from that conversation was that you know we talk about Biden's age. We also should be talking about his experience. This is somebody who you know was as a veteran of the Cold Wars who understood what those nego- negotiations were like. So there was a real sense of okay, this is this is my understanding of the situation. What else can what else can we add? To, what else can we bring to this? And I do think that it's a difficult one when you're when you're speaking for a Cuban American um, community or for as a Cuban American. I, I can't really say that I speak for a constituency or in in that sense. Right. But as a Cuban American, you're you're bringing both of those identities to it, mm-hmm. and you have a sense of what you would like to see happen in Cuba, and then you also have a sense of this is I'm a, a citizen of the United States. This is where I am. This is um, who represents me. So you're, you're trying to, to 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 speak to both of those and not not leave anything behind and not leave anything out. And it's very emotional. I yeah. think the sense of when you have when you remember your family just being very vulnerable and coming with that one suitcase that we all we all have that one suitcase story and those few things and you just think I'm in a I'm in the White House. I'm I'm able to have this conversation. And but for them making those sacrifices, but for them making sure that we were reached safety and that we had the opportunity to participate in democracy, you can get to this point where you're having a conversation with your democratic, rep, you know, with your, with your representatives and you're able to, to make that case. Right. Um, and then more recently with um, the vice president, that was in a different capacity. Mm-hmm. She was there to make a climate uh, response to, to what the, the, the last kind of administration was announcing around climate and those investments. And it was about bringing together different community members, different organizations that were engaged on climate. And it was, it was an interesting conversation because they told us, be prepared for questions. She's going to be interested and she's going to ask for more information. You have to kind of, you know, you have your kind of set piece that you're going to, you're going to speak well, that, to. That's what you want, right? That's exactly that's what, what you, you want. want. Because and like you said, you represent folks, or you rep, not represent, but you're trying to unify folks that are all being affected by climate change. Whether that means that, you know, the you know, that you're getting a fish kill mm-hmm. off of where your house might be or that your roads are now flooded because of climate change, right? Well, you know, someone who was with us was having that experience. She was mm. both representing an organization that, that works, does, does a lot of work in the workers' community. I, I, actually, she was the person who said about celebrating immigrants before Sancho Dennis. But she's also somebody who lives in Fort Lauderdale and they were just, they were experiencing historic floods. Mm-hmm. So I think when we talk about the climate crisis, you're talking about people who are living it. So I think she was very much present and ready to answer those questions and how we can be supportive and how we can be available as partners. And I think that's what I've always taken away from any interaction I've had with representatives, that I think we we tend to other them and make them seem like these figures that, yes, we need things from, but then we can also dehumanize in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think there are people who, incredibly informed, very thoughtful, have committed to public service where they could have probably done other things and have pursued more lucrative avenues and they there's a change that they wanted to make happen and i think we don't see that we don't always see the positive and that we don't always see the human being that can be that can be really receptive and that you want to stay engaged with and communicate with right i think about how all this must have really come at you pretty fast because i, I know that your your co-founder your late co-founder uh, patrick hidalgo um, he worked in the Obama White House, and he worked in public engagement, which is mm-hmm. exactly what you guys are doing. And I imagine there must have been an element of like, oh, I'm, I'm going into this initiative with this guy who really knows, he he's he's the one that's really, uh, gonna you know, or, or, you know, knows the ropes, you yeah. know, and 
and you guys lost him. Um, he, he died in 2020 very suddenly, very unexpectedly at, at a young age of 41. Um, I don't know. I guess, I guess I wonder how you continued after that. It was it was difficult, and I think it was difficult, obviously, in a in a personal um, way, as someone who mm-hmm. lost Patrick, and then in what in the work that we'd committed to, um, and you feel more invested. You feel like yeah. if you did, if you wanted to 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 go forward before now, it's like you you have to because this is something that you know he started, and you 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 have the the honor to be able to carry that work forward, yeah. um, if not with him, then for him. And I think. I was very fortunate in that we had this community of people around us who did lend their experience and there were things that maybe Patrick um, would have been able to, roles, things that he could have they could have done or informed me of that I could call somebody, call on somebody and be like, okay, this is a situation, what can I do? And um, very, very grateful for the board of people that I had around me um, that, that really coalesced and then the, the community that really you know showed up and was always at, at any point where I was trying something, I always did feel like I had that that backup and that support. Um, so I can't. I, I think all of us in in having shared that loss of Patrick, um, were equally invested in seeing this go forward. So yeah. I, I can't. I, I'm I'm so grateful to the people that that I work with. Well, I think it also drives home the point that it wasn't a singular vision, a singular person's vision. That clearly there was a group of people who all believed in this one thing, and that, and that you could, you guys could make a difference by by uniting your talents, right? Yeah, I mean, I think in in all of the work that Patrick and I did, there was always that thought of like, okay, well, we care. Will other people care? We mm-hmm. want to talk about this. Do other people want to talk about this? But it was always a question, and I think I've I've I've, I've received that answer from so many people. Um, you know, I think from the from our board of board of advisors or board of directors, they've been they've really had to step in and maybe take a more outsized role than they mm-hmm. they, could, they maybe could have. I, I hope I I hope they've been able to, um, you know, they feel good about their their the the time that they've given me. It's 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 certainly been valued, and I, I've appreciated that it's helped us grow. I think you know I was very fortunate. I think you know I I was very early on. Patrick's um, there's two nieces who are wonderful, Carolina. And Sophia, who are they're my little Zoomer geniuses, hmm. and Carolina was very helpful with us through, through the election. And then Sophia took over; she's a student at FIU. Amazing, um, wonderful young person. So I've always had that kind of Gen Z perspective, um, which is has been an education in itself. So I think I've had I've benefited from the education and the the experience of people who came before me. But then also as have I, the with ones my producers who are, uh, in the other room. Yeah, they're they're just coming up and all their opinions and really helpful feedback, which is so, so great. But yeah, I, I've I've loved having that conversations with her because I think you know in so much of the work that we're doing, you're thinking about what's possible. But then you also want to think about what what can what can happen, right. and I think having people that across generations that you're working with, is 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 really the key to having anything that feels whole that you're moving forward in, in a really holistic, powerful way. So with that kind of support, you know, with the, the little bit of time we have left, what do you want to focus on in the next election cycle, which is like right upon us here? We have a few focuses um, that we're you know I think right now um, where we are now we really want to get the word out about vote by mail. It's something mm-hmm. that, um, because of a law that was passed a couple of years ago, as of the last election, where mostly, largely, the the rolls were cleared. So many people who I think are anticipating that that mail-in ballot that arrives at their house and maybe reminds them whether or not that they use it that there is an election. We have um, municipal, local elections that are happening in the fall. They're not going to get it, 
so we want to get out the word that people need to make sure that they're they're registering to vote by mail. There has been, you know, we've all gotten the reminders, but it's important to to make sure that you're you're re-upping. So definitely vote by mail and to figure out other ways that you can stay engaged. Uh, look at the Miami Freedom Project. You can find them on Instagram at Miami Freedom Project. Anna Sophia, thank you so much for making the time for us today. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Our guest today was the activist and writer Anna Sophia Pelais. She's the executive director of the Miami Freedom Project, a progressive voter advocacy group. And that's Sundown for Thursday, August 24th. Leslie Ovai Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. And Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio. Engineering our board today is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo. You, da- you can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up next week on the program, if it's in the news, Fabiola Santiago has an opinion on it. She's an award-winning Miami Herald columnist. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. WLRN Public Media.